Well, our text this morning is 1 Samuel 16, the first 13 verses. We have been looking in the Old Testament at how God revealed His Son to the people who lived long before He was born among us. And we've seen a number of ways in which God revealed the coming of His Son, revealed the work of His Son. Today, we're going to look at a passage that shows uh, both in principle and in type. And we've seen both kinds of passages before. In principle, that's like uh, when we looked at Deuteronomy 17 and talked about the, uh, the way God would raise up a king in their midst, right? The principles that they should look for in setting a king over them. But then also in type, we saw that in the soldier who met with Joshua in our last text. How he was a type of Christ, the conquering uh, leader of the hosts of the Lord. Well, today we see a, a passage that gives us both principle and type as we see David anointed as king. Listen in 1 Samuel 16. Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I am sending you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. But the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Then invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. You shall anoint for me the one I name to you. So Samuel did what the Lord said and went to Bethlehem. And the elders of the town trembled at his coming and said, Do you come peaceably? So Samuel, er, and he said, Peaceably. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. So it was when they came that he looked at Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at, the, at his appearance or at his physical stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So Jesse called up Binadab and made him pass before Samuel, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Thus Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, and Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. And Samuel said to Jesse, Are all the young men here? Then he said, There remains yet the youngest, and there he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and bring him, for we shall not sit down till he comes here. So he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy with bright eyes and good looking. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is the one. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel arose and went to Ramah. Amen. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. <clears throat> Beloved servants of God in Christ our King. Have you ever been surprised to learn that someone you knew well had a surprising skill or maybe an unknown ability? My best friend from 
pretty much kindergarten all the way through school. Hated school. I mean hated it. He squeaked by. He managed to pass his classes barely. Got his diploma. Just managed to do that. He's a great friend. He was a hard worker, but he was not an academic, and he made no bones about that. We all accepted that. But then about five years after we graduated, my friend asked for help as he was building a house for himself. He had been working as a carpenter and seemed to really enjoy that, but he needed a, an extra hand. The first day I worked with him, I was stunned. As we were, were working... This young man was building his house. He had no plans drawn up. He was doing it all from his head. And he was doing advanced mathematical calculations with no paper, no calculator. Just doing it. He hated school, hated academics, but this was what he was passionate about. And it was absolutely evident that this is what God had equipped him to do. The point is... God prepares a person for the work that He has ordained that person to do. He might not be gifted at a bunch of other stuff, but what God has ordained for that person to do, God equips him to do it. A few weeks ago, we studied a text that talked about how Israel was to select a king. And we heard that they were not to select a king on the basis of the criteria that was used by the nations around them. So they weren't to set a foreigner over them because it was politically expedient. They weren't to set a man over them who was judged according to the world's expectations, but rather they were to look for one of their brothers, one upon whom God had set his seal, whom God had raised up. And they were to expect that man to not rest in the strength of horses or alliances with other nations, to not fill his life with passions for women or for money, but rather to focus on God, on His Word, on His wisdom. That's what was to characterize the king. And we saw that that pointed all of it toward Jesus, the true king, the king of kings. Well, sure enough, over the course of time, the people did what Moses said they would do. They called out for a king like those of the, that rule the nations around them. And the first king God gave them was the king they wanted. It was Saul. A man who was deeply impressive. He was handsome. He was a head taller than any of those around him. He was just one of those men who looks noble. The people loved following him. But Saul was not willing to put God first. And so God said he was going to remove him as king. And set a better man, a godly man, upon the throne in his place. And that's what this passage is about. Now understand, God's going to raise up a king in this passage, but but he's not really going to raise him up. He's going to anoint him and let him and those close to him know that he would become king. But he wouldn't actually take the throne for yet a number of years. God still had to remove Saul. God still had to finish preparing this new king. But today we see how God selected him and how God anointed him, setting on him the seal of his favor, the seal of his office, the seal of the Holy Spirit who would equip him. And what we see in this text is that God anoints a king 
according to His sovereign purposes. Not ours, not societies, not the world's, but according to His sovereign purposes. But before He reveals who that King is, He he first shows who it is not. Rejecting those who delight the eyes of men. So that's our first point. He rejects those who delight the eyes of men. But the first thing we see in this passage leads us to ask what exactly happened with the former king? What happened with Saul? We learn the story of that starting in about chapter 13. There we read that Saul was preparing for battle with the Philistines. And he had arranged for Samuel, who was both a prophet and priest, to come and offer sacrifice before the battle. To bring worship so that God's people could go into battle the way they ought to, having focused their hearts on the Lord. But Samuel was delayed in coming. And the people started to get antsy. And so Saul, rather than encourage the people to wait, rather than remind the people that their duty is to God first, Saul offered the sacrifice himself. And of course, immediately after he did so, Samuel arrived. And seeing what the king had done, he rebuked him before all the people. And he said, you've done foolishly. And because you have rejected the law of God, which commands how sacrifices are to be given, God will reject you and will raise up another as king, a man after his own heart. And then two chapters later, in chapter 15, Samuel is sent to Saul and told to... Give him the task of eradicating the Amalekites. The Amalekites, according to Exodus 17, were a people who had attacked, had ambushed Israel shortly after they had come out of Egypt, thinking that the people were weak, that they were out of their element. The Amalekites came and they attacked them. Now, God defeated them at that battle. But he promised that he would one day remove them from the face of the earth in judgment. And now through Samuel, he tells Saul, that day has come, so go and destroy them. Destroy their nobles and their common people, their men and their women, their adults and their children, their livestock, their everything. Get rid of all of them. And Saul did, sort of, kind of. But as he comes back, Samuel, Samuel hears the sound of sheep and oxen. And he says, what is all of this? And, and who is this man? Well, it was King Agag the leader of the Amalekites. And he says, what have you done? And, and first Saul, he excuses it. He says, well, we, we saved the very best of the livestock to sacrifice to the Lord, of course. And, and when Saul, Samuel pushes him a bit, Saul says, well, the people wanted to do it. I, I couldn't stand against the people. And so Samuel again rebukes him. And he says, has the Lord as great a delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you from being king. And he turned to go and Saul grabbed hold of him. And said, no, don't leave me. Don't go away from me. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord. And the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. 
And the last thing we read in that chapter, chapter 15, is that Samuel went no more to see Saul until the day of his death. Nevertheless, Samuel mourned for Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Samuel mourned for Saul, grieved over him. Why? It was probably a number of factors. He grieved that such sin had taken root in Israel, which of course would defame the Lord. And he grieved that God's people were being ruled by a man who was so unwilling to follow after the Lord, who would lead them astray. And he grieved for Saul. I mean, remember, he had anointed Saul as king. He had mentored Saul. He had spoken to Saul on behalf of God. He cared about him. Samuel grieved the loss that sin had brought. And that kind of grief is proper. We should grieve when sin takes root among the people of God. We should weep when leaders of the church give cause for the people of the world to slander God. We should, we should so love the people of God that we mourn when they fall into sin and rebellion. Do you do that? It's a good question to ask. That's not the main point of this passage, but it's a good question to ask. Do you grieve when the people of God turn away from Him? We should. But we must not stay in our grief. We must not allow that grief to consume us. Because if we do that, we show that we're not trusting in the Lord, who is more powerful than sin, who is able to overcome that which brings his people low. Samuel is rebuked for doing that, for continuing to mourn for Saul, revealing that his focus is on the man and the defeat, rather than God, and the conquest that he inevitably brings. So God rebukes Samuel, and he sends him on to anoint a new king. A king who would be obedient to the true king. A king who would, who would be in truth what Saul was not. One of the sons of Jesse down in Bethlehem, that's where the king is to be found. But Samuel has a concern. How can I go? If Saul finds out, he'll kill me. And listen, chances are good that Saul's going to find out. He's still serving as king. And he's popular because he's managed to keep their enemies at bay. So somebody's going to hear, somebody's going to say that Israel back in those days was like the Reformed churches today. If something happens in one congregation, all the congregations are going to know pretty quick. And Samuel knew that. And he understood that Saul would regard anointing a new king as an act of treason. And treason, then as now, is punishable by death. So how could Samuel go and do what God was commanding? Well, the Lord tells him, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. That's the truth. He would sacrifice and he would... As was common in those days, he would sacrifice and then the sacrificial animal would become the centerpiece of a feast for the whole town. So it's not a lie, but it's not entire, the entire truth, is it? Because he was also to anoint a king. Well, Samuel obeys the Lord. And it turns out he was right to be concerned because as he enters the town, the elders of the town trembled. And they said, do you come peaceably? Now, we're not told exactly what their concern was. It, it might have been that they worried that, that Samuel thought they had done something wrong, that this was a, a disciplined visit. But far more likely, they trembled 
because they knew about the split between Saul and Samuel. How Samuel had declared that God had rejected Saul as king and that he would anoint a new king after God's own heart. They probably trembled because they feared that Samuel thought Bethlehem needed to have something to do with that and they didn't want to get on the wrong side of Saul. So they ask, have you come peaceably? And he says, I have. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. And then he urges the people to prepare, to cleanse themselves, to get ready for the sacrifice and the feast that would follow. And then he went and he invited Jesse and his sons to join him at the feast. And then prior, prior to that, he takes the time to review Jesse's sons. Verse 6, so it was. When they came that he looked at Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. Eliab was Jesse's eldest son. Now we're not told what made him so impressive. Might have been that he was handsome. He was like Saul, one of those big, tall, noble-looking men that just looks like he should be leading others. Or maybe he was quite intelligent. One of those men that as soon as you speak to him, you know that this, this guy understands a lot. He'd be a good one to put in charge of things. For whatever reason, Samuel takes one look at him, gets, gets one bit of exposure to Eliab, and he thinks this is the one. But God says no. In fact, he says do not look at his appearance or his physical stature because I have refused him. God doesn't care how attractive or how smart or how impressive the man is. Because those aren't the things that move God to act. Men look at those surface characteristics. Men look at the gifts a man has cultivated. But God looks deeper. The Lord does not see as a man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. God's judgment is deeper than ours. And so when he judges a man's strengths and weaknesses, when he recognizes his faithfulness or faithlessness, God's judgment is far more true and far more reliable than ours. That's the testimony of Scripture throughout, isn't it? Psalm 147. It says, He does not delight in the strength of the horse. He takes no pleasure in the legs of a man. The Lord takes pleasure in those who fear Him, in those who hope in His mercy. And you see, we can't tell what the heart of a man holds. We can't discern how truly he holds to the Lord. Only God can do that. He says in Jeremiah 17, I, the Lord, search the heart, I test the mind, even to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doing. So God is able to judge us with a, a faithfulness, a reliability that is beyond the scope and, ability, and, and power of men. God will choose his king, not Samuel, not any other man. And he will do so not by what the eyes of men see, but but by the heart, by the truth of that man. Folks, there's an important lesson in that for us. Samuel's problem, when he looked at Eliab, when he judged Eliab, was that he relied on what he could see. Physical traits, human perceptions, impressions of behavior, that's what initially mattered to him. Eliab delighted his eyes for whatever reason, but God judges the heart which we can't even discern. 
That requires looking not just at what a person does, but why he does it. Not just how a person speaks and acts today, but how he has spoken and acted throughout his life. Not just at what he confesses, but where he's truly set his heart. There's nothing wrong with having a good appearance, with acting and behaving and, and in a way that's upright. But people tend to idolize the appearance of man. Is that person physically attractive? Does he speak in a way which makes him seem cultured? Does he act in a way that is impressive? We look at that stuff and it becomes the sum and substance of how we judge a man. And we're tempted to do that when, when we meet visitors coming into church. Or when we're selecting among candidates for office in the church. Rather than rather than receiving that visitor as someone who might be one of God's people and who needs to, to hear and see and know the love of God. As someone whom God has set before us that we might show them the gospel and show them God's mercy. We're tempted to start saying, so who are you related to? And what gifts do you have? And what, what do you have that can bless me, that can bless us? Rather than looking at their heart or with office, we're tempted to look at, at which of these men looks most like an elder or a deacon. Which of these men will not embarrass us? Or... Which one's most connected? Which one has the longest history in our congregation? But that's all surface stuff. God judges by the heart and He calls us to do likewise. And that means, that means looking at their gifts, looking at the way God has used them, and most of all praying that God would lead us to choose the one whom He has chosen, that His will, will might be revealed. His choosing might be evident. God is the one who looks at the heart, not at what delights the eyes of men. We need to seek to cultivate that in ourselves, but most of all, we need to trust in Him to raise up the leader whom He has selected. After God rejects Eliab, Samuel gets it. And so he's probably not surprised when Abinadab is brought before him and God says, nope, not this one. And then Shema is brought in front of him and God says, nope, not this one. And, and so forth throughout all of Jesse's sons. And so Samuel comes to a dilemma. God told him concerning Jesse, I've provided a king for myself among his sons. And yet each of the sons whom Samuel had seen, God says, no, not this one. So Samuel looks at Jesse and says, are they all here? Turns out there's one more. And in Him we see how God elects Him who delights the heart of God. Samuel's looking for another son of Jesse, and when asked, Jesse answers, there remains yet the youngest, and there he is out shepherding the, or keeping the sheep. He's the youngest. Literally, in the Hebrew, the small one. And he's out with the sheep, which is a lowly job in that culture. So all in all, not a very promising prospect. But God does not judge the way men judge. Samuel insists, no one's eating until we see Jesse, this young one. Or uh, David, this young one. 
Don't miss the lesson there, brothers and sisters. In the eyes of men, there was no reason to bring Jesse or to bring David in from the field. He's probably at this point just a a young teen. He's the one who catches all the tasks that his brothers don't want to do. That's why he's out shepherding the sheep. It's a necessary job, but but nobody wants to do it. It's boring. You're leading around a bunch of sheep that are too senseless to lead themselves. It's hours and hours and hours of doing nothing but watching, inspecting, keeping sheep. Not an important job in the eyes of society in that day. But but God saw differently. God loves to raise up those who are lowly. And in fact, He loves to use those lowly tasks to prepare them for far greater things. David was a shepherd, the work that was scorned, but that work was preparing him to lead an often stubborn people in a way that they might not want to go. That work was teaching him to be patient and to wait for God. That work was teaching him to be brave as he defended the flock from lions, bears. That work was teaching him all that he was going to need to know, or at least much of what he needed to know, to become king. And moreover, it was giving him plenty of time to develop and to cultivate a relationship with the Lord. God was preparing David in this lowly time of his life to be exalted to a position of prominence. Well, David comes. And we read he was ruddy, with bright eyes and good looking. He's ruddy. That's a... A reddish complexion. The look of a man who spends a lot of his time out in the elements. The sun beating down upon him. The wind blowing against him night and day. His skin, though fresh and young, is already a bit weather-worn. You know, that ruddy look was despised by the influential men of that culture. They wanted to look like they never had to spend a moment outside. They didn't have to work for a living. But in David, it demonstrates liveliness. He's not afraid to get his hands dirty. He's not afraid to go out and do what needs to be done. His eyes are bright, showing off his intelligence. This young man's a thinker. He's he's taking in everything that comes before him. And he's not hard to look at. Although God doesn't accept folks because they are good-looking, neither does He reject them because they're good-looking. External appearance neither qualifies nor disqualifies a man to serve. It it simply doesn't matter. It doesn't enter into the equation. What God cares about is the heart. And having looked at the heart of David, God approves of what he sees. He says to to Samuel, Arise, anoint him, for this is the one. David will be Israel's next king. Though still a lowly teen, though still smelling like sheep, He is the one who will lead God's people, defending them from vicious enemies, leading them in serving God. So Samuel obeys. He anoints him with the oil that he has brought. Surely this is a shock to David's family. I mean, up until this time and even after, as we see from the account of Goliath, David was considered the runt. He was... The scorned one of the family. His brothers spoke roughly and unappreciatively of him. But God chooses the man whom he chooses. 
The man who is close to his heart. And those whom he calls, he equips. And already he's begun to equip David to serve as king. <clears throat> there are a couple of things we need to see in this selection of David. The first is that the most important qualities of a man are not physical. A man can be a beautiful specimen of humanity. He can have a smile that lights up the room, muscles that make men quake. He can be utterly brilliant, understanding things that most men can't even begin to grasp. But none of that qualifies a man to please God. What qualifies a man to please God is where his heart stands with regard to God. Does he trust God more than he trusts any man? Does he love God more than he loves his life or anything in it? Does he study the truth God has revealed, believing it to be the absolute unqualified truth? Does he bear the image of God in his, his love and joy, peace and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control? That is what pleases the Lord. And therefore it's, it's these things that we as believers ought to cultivate. Yes, by all means, young men, young women, become good at the work that God sets before you. Excel at your studies. By all means, take care of your, your gifts and your abilities and your appearance. But put a priority on your faith. The most important class you will take all week is the one you'll take in just a few minutes in catechism. When you study the things of God, the most important thing you do every day isn't brush your teeth or comb your hair or go to school or eat your dinner. The most important thing you do every day is read God's Word and spend time in prayer with Him. And the most important people you can surround yourself with are those who bear the character of Christ, His love, His patience, His peace, His joy. Because their character will affect your character. And if their character is godly, you will begin more and more to love and serve God. That's the first lesson we see here, but the second is even greater. Because in calling David, Israel saw, in the calling of David, Israel saw, and we today see, the calling of Christ. Jesus was not distinguished by his outward appearances. In fact, Isaiah 53 says he has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. Jesus wasn't a man who stood out from the crowd like Saul did. Nor did Jesus appeal to the fads and fashions of the leaders of his society. He didn't scrupulously follow all the traditions that they had made up. He wasn't shy about offending those who were offending God. Jesus never set out to win the hearts of men, especially the leaders among men. In fact, when the social opinion makers met Jesus, they generally scorned him. And he came from the wrong place, from a kind of a backwater location. He hung out with the wrong people, folks who were notorious for their sin, he was too common, too lowly, like David, a lowly shepherd boy. But the Lord looks at the heart. When God chose Jesus, He chose one whom the world would never have chosen. 
But he was the one who would serve not only as the king, but as the king of kings. And notice the last thing in our text. Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. The presence and the power of the Holy Spirit has always been a hallmark of those whom God has chosen for a unique task. Moses was given the Holy Spirit to equip him to lead God's people out of Egypt. The elders who were to share his work were given the Holy Spirit for that purpose. The judges who protected and delivered Israel throughout their age were each equipped with the Holy Spirit. Now our God chose David to serve as king. And now he was equipping him to do it well. Equipping him with the Spirit who would give him wisdom and power to lead and guide and defend the people of God. And also the power to endure. Notice, as soon as David is anointed as king, the trouble starts. Next thing you know, he's fighting Goliath. Then he's leading the soldiers in battle against the uh, the Philistines as one of Saul's soldiers. And then he's dodging the spear of Saul himself and then fleeing the the wicked vendetta that Saul has launched against him. But by the Holy Spirit's power, God sustains him, strengthens him, enables him to persevere until God sets him on the throne in due time. That's what He always does for those whom He calls. He sends His Spirit to equip them for the work to which they've been called and to preserve them from the danger that they face. We can expect the same equipping and preserving power of God today. And nowhere is that more clearly seen than in the life of Jesus. In Isaiah 11, God promised there shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse and a branch shall grow out of his roots. That's Jesus. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. His delight is the fear of the Lord. And he shall not judge by the sight of the eyes. Nor decide by the hearing of the ears. Jesus was given the spirit. At his baptism in the form of a dove descending upon him. And from that time forth he went out. Facing the persecution of Satan and the world and enduring under it, but also doing the works that demonstrated the power of our God to redeem and restore from sin and its destructive power. Now, Jesus having completed his work and ascended to his throne as king, now Jesus sends the Holy Spirit to equip us. He is the one who equips our elders to lead us on His behalf according to His commands. He is the one who equips our deacons by the Holy Spirit so that they can lead us in serving, lowly service of the sort that Jesus demonstrated to us. His is the power that allows our marriages to sustain in the midst of a world filled with temptations and trials. He's the one who gives wisdom to parents seeking to raise up godly children. He grants the courage and the grace that allows us to introduce Jesus to unbelievers. And in the face of persecution, slander, hardships, trials, He's the one who sustains us day by day. It's the Spirit who brings us to the foot of Christ's cross daily. And He is the one who ensures that we will never fall away. So, brothers and sisters, that 
reveals our calling. In the anointing of David, we see the anointing and the power of Christ who was to come. And in the anointing and the equipping of Christ, we see our calling as those who have faith in Him to share in His kingly reign. He gives us the Spirit. He gives each of us, not just our elders and deacons, He gives each of us the Spirit so that we might begin conquering the sin in our lives. So that we might begin ruling over that which God sets before us on His behalf. So that we might serve the people He sets in our lives selflessly, Christ-likely. We can only do it by His power. And we can only do it because Christ is our King. But because He sits on that throne today, because He received that anointing, we not only can, but we must serve Him as prophets, as priests, and as kings. To God alone be all the glory. Amen. Let us pray. O Lord, our Heavenly Father, You have indeed set Jesus over us as our great King. And we thank You for that. We thank You and we praise You that You so love us and provide for us. And we pray, Father, that You would that You would continue to equip us and transform us so that our hearts might be pleasing to You and our lives might delight You. We pray, Father, that You would make us to be kings in truth, reigning over and, and defeating the sin that seeks to enter our lives and the sinful patterns that have always been there. And we pray, Father, that You would, would use our rulership over that over those opportunities you set in our life in such a way that it would draw others to you. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.